What I'd like to have you do uh, is, is turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I, I'm, I'm actually going to do a very abbreviated study because of our time. A very abbreviated study on uh, the, the first uh, installment of three lessons that I'm teaching at this coming pastor's conference. Uh, I call that economy. So I've been working very hard on, on these uh, studies and, and uh, uh, I want to share with you what I share with them. So if you will turn to 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 11 and then we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 3 and 1 Timothy chapter 1 but I'll let you know when we get there. Uh, and I'm reading a, a, a considerable amount of verses right now because I want to put everything in context. There are three verses in each of those passages that are key verses that I want you to focus on, but I, but I believe it's important to, to set the context of uh, what we're dealing with. The title of this message is called Less Than the Least, and you'll see why. Verse 3, uh, Paul said to the church in Corinth, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Kephas, uh, which is uh, Peter, and then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. Verse 9 is our key verse, where Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet or fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And now in Ephesians chapter 3, I'd like to begin reading in verse 1. Our key verse is found in verse 8. Let's begin reading in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the, uh, to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. And now the key verse, unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, 
that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Lastly, I'd like to have you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll only look at verses 12 through 15. And verse 15 is our key verse. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now, there is something that I remember so clearly soon after I came to receive the Lord Jesus Christ into my life during a time that was known as the Jesus Movement in the early, 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 early 70s. It was very early, as you can tell. But what I remember so clearly about that time was this, that there was a tremendous emphasis in knowing that Jesus was coming soon for his church, his bride, and we were to be ready for his return. I still believe that today. I believe it even more strongly today because we are so much closer now to the coming of Christ. More signs have been revealed to tell us that Jesus could come at any moment. And the very fact that he comes for his church is an imminent thing. It is something that it doesn't need anything else to happen for it to happen. So we were excited back then, that was 47 years ago, and it's as exciting to me today as it was then. So I remember that. Jesus was coming for his church and we were to be ready for his return. Now, we were to be ready by occupying till he returned, which meant that we were to be ready because we were, we were to serve the Lord gladly. We were to serve one another in the church. We were to tell others about Jesus Christ. We were to support and, uh, and help uh, the poor. And, and, and In other words, just do everything that the Lord had put into our hearts to do through his word. We were to be ready by being filled with his Holy Spirit, and we were to be ready by exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We were to be ready by staying in and living in his word. It was something that we did every day. It wasn't anything that we put aside because it was the weekend. We did it every day because he was coming. We were to be ready by expressing the love of Christ 
through selfless lives. Selfless lives. Not considering ourselves better than others, but by humbling ourselves and taking up our crosses daily and following Jesus Christ wholeheartedly. You know, there's a cliche nowadays. You know, I, I do things 24-7 and 365. You know, you, you ever heard that? We were doing that before that became a cliche. Because with every breath, we were to love Jesus. With every breath, we were to serve him. With every breath, we were to proclaim him. And we were to live as the Apostle Paul taught us in Philippians chapter 2. When he said, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, in other words, to the very deepest part of our own lives, he said, fulfill ye my joy, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself. We were to lift others up above us. Let look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. You can, it's okay to be concerned about the things of your life, but make sure that you're concerned more about the concerns of others. And then he said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And of course, we know what follows this, and we can read it later. We know that it talks about Jesus who lowered himself voluntarily to this earth, took upon himself flesh, became obedient unto the cross, came to die on our behalf. But a few more verses into this chapter, Paul said this in verses 14 through 16, chapter 2 of Philippians. He said, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Do all things without murmuring and complaining. That's a hard one, isn't it? That you might be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, and notice where and when. In the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. What Paul said to the church in Philippi is what he is saying to the church in America today. He's saying, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Be blameless, be harmless, be the sons of God, and be light in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Which I think that you'd agree with me, we're living in a perverse and, and crooked generation and nation today. It's all around us. But we are to hold forth the word of life. Now, I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I have to fight the urge to murmur and dispute or complain about some things. Uh, you don't have to raise your hand. 
but I don't think I'm alone. And I have to say, I have to say it's a constant struggle. And, I, and I'm, not a, I'm not sure I'm winning all the battles. I'd like to believe that I am. But I, but I know all too well. But what I've come to learn and to appreciate is the heart and the character of the Apostle Paul, who faced those very same struggles himself, and yet all the while exhibiting the very humility of Christ himself. I don't see that happening in the Church of Jesus Christ that much today, by the leaders and the pastors and the preachers that we see on TV or here or watch on the internet, whatever. I don't see that exhibited much. I'd like to believe that we can see it and we can find it. But there's a problem when we are not humble before God as leaders and as pastors. And sure, the struggles and the battles were real. Go to Galatians chapter 5, if you will. Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 13, where Paul himself says, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. The occasion of the flesh, an occasion for the flesh, really indicates a desire to do something for self and not for others. Think about that for just a moment. I've heard word of faith preachers, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit. I'm not going to name names today. I may do it next week or next time. But I've heard them say that do what you do for yourself because God wants you to be happy. Really? Last time I checked, he wants us to be holy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We'll be joyful. But he's not sitting up there, oh, I hope they're just happy and smiling. When you smile, the glint comes out of the tooth. Ding! But do it for yourself. They said, you don't come here to church for, for God, you come for yourself. I said, what? Do you see what I'm saying? Well, by the way, while they're raking in, the cash. All right. I said my say. Well, I'm not done yet, but I will say. But by love, serve one another. By love, serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, folks, we don't need to be told to love ourselves. Okay, I have to say, some people are telling you to do that. A few years ago, Rick Warren wrote an article for uh, Ladies Home Journal. Never talked about Jesus. All he said was, love yourself, uh, believe in yourself, uh, you know, do everything for yourself. And I thought, wow, what an opportunity to tell the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead, he's telling these women to love themselves. We don't have to tell anybody to love ourselves. How many of you do not have a mirror in your home? How many of you did not look into a mirror this morning to come over here? From what I can tell, you all did. Why? 
Because we kind of love ourselves a little bit, and we, we, you know, we want to be presentable. We don't want to look like a bunch of weirdos. Well, okay, so some, some like to be weirdo, but you know. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? Where, where does this come from? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as I say. You already love yourself. You don't need to be told to love yourself. So, you know what? You need to love your neighbor more. And then he goes on and he says, But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What a simple little principle. Walk in the Spirit of God and not in the flesh, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, that war inside, as he goes on to say in verse 17, for the, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. Paul is speaking from experience, as we'll see momentarily. But he says in verse 18, but if you be led of the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, turn to Romans chapter 7. And notice what Paul says to the church in Rome in, in chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Now, now, your homework for this week, of course, is read all of chapter 7 of Romans. Because he kind of fills in a lot of stuff. I'm just, I'm just taking the highlights here. And here in verse 18, he says, For I know that in me, notice what he says, I know that in me, that is, in my flesh. So what is Paul doing? He's doing this. I know that in me dwelleth no good thing. Now you can go to some places today and they're going to tell you, listen, you're okay. I got up this morning realizing something. I'm not okay. I need Jesus. So I want to meet him every morning. I want to spend time with him because I need him. And I want him to fill me with his spirit because I need him. And I want to serve him because I need him. And Paul says, I know that in me dwelleth no good thing. That is in my flesh. For the will is present with me. I, I, I really want to serve the Lord. I really want to do good things, you know, for the Lord. The will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not in his flesh. For the good that I would, I do not. The good that I want to do, I don't do it. Then he says, for the good that I would, not, I, uh, for the good that I, would I, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. The very thing I don't want to do, sometimes I end up doing. This is the Apostle Paul. We have raised a standard with Paul in the church. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it, we, it, it's, it's understandable. He, I mean, he, he was a, he's a hero of the faith. But he was human just like you and me. And he lets you know he wasn't perfect. That's what he's telling us here. And I want you to notice something in Romans 7, verse 24. Just go down to, to, to that verse because there he says, as he's crying out to God, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? 
the body of this death, the flesh. Now keep that in, uh, keep that in mind there. Keep a bookmark in that thought. Getting back to my testimony for just a moment, or at least the testimony of the time of coming to the Lord. There were movements alongside the revival that we call the Jesus Movement, one in particular rising out of the Pentecostal charismatic branch of the same Jesus Movement, and that was what we know today now as the Word of Faith or Prosperity Movement or Doctrine. And I have to say that it was a movement that initially had fundamental roots in sound evangelical teaching, but would begin to stray into heretical positions through receiving so-called words of wisdom or knowledge or through visions as coming from the Lord himself or through poor exegetical study and teaching of the Word of God. And they've built upon that. I have to say, I have to use the word, it, it evolved into what it is today. And eventually teaching such as you don't have a God in you, you are one. That is one of their teachings today by one of the primary Word of Faith teachers. You don't have a God in you, you are one. Or the very heretical thought that Jesus went to suffer for us in hell and fought for us in hell and had to be born again after his victory over the enemy. That is being taught uh, quite a bit in, in, in most of the Word of Faith movements. So that began to take root. Those kinds of teachings began to take root in, in the movement. But soon enough, <clears throat> these preachers started becoming somethings. And I use the word purposely. They started to become somethings. And they let you know it. They, they were what they call today the anointed. They were the anointed ones. You ever hear conversations among the preachers of the Word of Faith doctrine when they're talking to themselves, they say, oh, this is, a, this is an anointed brother, this is an anointed sister, you need to listen to them, you know, because they're the anointed ones. Now, if you look at the book of 1 John, John, speaking to the church, tells the church that those who are in Christ are the anointed ones. We, we, folks, we need to be anointed, why? So we can hear the word and discern and know that it is right. 1 John chapter 4, believe not every spirit, but test the spirits that they be of God. So that got into the, the whole picture where they began to look down on people and say, well, here we're the anointed ones. We, we hear from God. As a matter of fact, now they don't fly commercial airlines today because they can't hear from God there because there are too many demons in those planes. How, what a nice way to talk about the people on the plane. So they have to, you know, they have to ask their, their, you know, listeners to give them $57 million so they can buy their own plane so they can hear from God while they're flying. Okay, I'm not, calm down, Charlie, calm down. All right. 
So what they're saying is that they're the ones to be heard, and if you give to them, if you give to them, then you would be blessed in abundance. There's one teacher today, I just heard very recently, who said to their congregation, this is a pastor in a church, and he said to his congregation, if you want to be blessed, pay up. Those were his words. His last name is a monetary unit, by the way. Dollar, okay. There was pride and arrogance exuding from these preachers as they continue to do what they do day in and day out. But to the churches in Galatia, and by the way, Galatia, the Galatians, Galatia was not a, a city as it was a, a, a region, so there were many churches that that letter was to go to. But to the churches in Galatia, Paul wrote this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and verse uh, 1 through 3. He said, Brethren, uh, and, and, and I use this both in context with what he's saying as well as using a statement that he mentions at the end here in verse 3. But he says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Literally, it's, it's giving the picture of looking at someone eye to eye, not looking down, but looking someone eye to eye. Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And then he says, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, what is the law of Christ? The law of Christ is the royal law of love. Love one another. Then he says, for if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. We have to be careful not to look down on people as if to say, that would never be me down there. That's why we have to look at them eye to eye. Because we all have the potential to fall. And Paul said, if a man think, he, think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. And deception, deception is the operative word. Because earlier in, in chapter 2, Paul used similar language when explaining to the Galatian churches of meeting with Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem. And, and that, there, that there was no difference between those who were of acknowledged reputation and himself. <clears throat> See, we have to understand that uh, there were Judaizers at the time that, that were you know, knocking Paul uh, because he, was, uh, uh, he himself had been a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees and so on and so forth. <clears throat> and so people were telling him, you need to go talk to the disciples and the apostles in, in Jerusalem. Some, somehow telling him, you know, you need to get straightened out by talking to Peter, James, and John, you know, the primary apostles who were with Jesus uh, daily for three and a half years. And what he's saying here, and he's not attacking the, the apostles, he's not uh, bringing them down, he's not, he's not putting them down. That, don't get that idea, because some people think that. But what he's saying is there's no difference. He, he's trying to point out to the Galatian churches, there was no difference between them and, and himself. Which, which is a good thing, because what he was saying is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the least of the saints. I'm the least of, of the apostles. But still, 
they're where they need to be. Here it is, Galatians 2, verse 6. He said, but, but of these who seem to be somewhat, seem from the standpoint of what, they, what he was told by the others, but, but of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. He says, God is not a respecter of persons. So he doesn't, you know, that, that is in, in, in fact the exact statement we need to hear today. God is no respecter of persons. God doesn't put anybody above and anoints them only so that they, they alone have the anointing over the people that they're called to. No. God accepteth no man's person. He says, for they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. Now, again, that is not knocking the disciples. What Paul was saying here is that in their meetings, the apostles added no new light to Paul. In other words, there was no new thing that he didn't already know. They didn't impose on him any obligation because they saw that the Lord had appointed Paul his work with the Gentiles and God's counsel was with him. So what did they do? There in, second, uh, in the second chapter, they extended the hand of fellowship to Paul. So Paul is, in fact, speaking good about his apostle brothers. And to all the apostles' favor, we can say that this is a far cry, <coughs> excuse me, from those who declare themselves as little gods and the only ones to be called God's anointed. Which brings us now to our texts in 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, and 1 Timothy. And I've placed them in chronological order to emphasize Paul's humility in serving Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, notice what he said. He says, for I am the least of the apostles that am not meet or fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. It stayed with him throughout his whole ministry that every time he served the church, he was the persecutor in his mind. He says, you know, man, I persecuted these people. It never left him. Though he knew he was clean, though he knew he was forgiven. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8, unto me who am less than the least of all saints. Less than the least. You can't get any lower than that. What he did was actually exalt the saints, the, the Hagioi. The saints, the ones who have been set apart for Jesus Christ. I'm least. I, I'm less than the least of all saints. Unto me is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Literally what Paul is saying is, I am the chiefest of sinners. I am the chiefest, chiefest of the chief of sinners. Saul of Tarsus, when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, would later be called 
Paul or Paulos, which actually means little. So he had already taken a name to make himself little in the presence of a mighty God. But Paul was the least, as he says of himself, the smallest in size, in amount, and in dignity of those called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's how he saw himself. Some would say today, well, Paul, that's a negative confession. No. That is a great confession. In his own words, Paul said, I am not fit, I am not competent, I am not sufficient, I am not worthy to be called an apostle, all because I persecuted the church of God. But by the mere grace and goodwill of God, by the undeserved favor of God, the Lord called me to be an apostle in that. It was not through, his, through my own power or wisdom, but it was through God's influence. If you read, <clears throat> go back to verse 12, and read what Paul says when he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me. Uh, literally, the word there in the Greek means to be empowered by. He, he has empowered me from within. He has empowered me inside for that he counted me. He deemed me worthy, or faithful, I should say. He deemed me faithful, putting me into the ministry. He put me into the ministry. who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. And, and, and the word injurious there is very interesting because it, it just means that he, he, he hurt people and he, he wanted to hurt people. He liked to hurt people and, and to the extent that even some, like Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, would be killed by his authority, injurious. But notice what he says, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. The very same Paul who, who said, listen, if anyone could have confidence in the flesh, I had confidence in the flesh. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was of the, of, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was, was, was a Pharisee. When it came to righteousness, man, I was zealous for that righteousness. But in the end, I just counted all as dung. Y'all don't need me to explain that, do you? Dung, y'all know what dung is? Okay. But all of that is dumb when I compare it to Jesus, to knowing Christ. And the grace, he goes on to say, the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. I have to tell you, <coughs> excuse me, that Paul would have been the first and the loudest 
to have sung the words of amazing grace had it been written in his time. And you know how he would have sung it? At the top of his lungs, he would have said, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When John Newton wrote this wonderful hymn, he didn't think about that word, whether it was too strong. That's exactly how he saw himself. Having been a slave trader, a captain of a slave ship, one who hated the slaves and beat the slaves, maybe even killed slaves, until he came to know Christ and his life was changed. He said, I, was, I am a wretch. He didn't say I was, I'm, I am, who saved a wretch like me. You know that there are those in, in, in Word of Faith and Prosperity Churches today that would say, well, that's a negative confession, so let's change the words, and they do. They say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves someone like me. Really? I don't know about you, but I look in the mirror, I all of a sudden realize what wretch means. Paul said, I'm the chiefest of sinners. But amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. For the Apostle Paul, as well as the other apostles, there was no room for boasting except in the cross of our Lord Jesus. There was no room for self-righteousness. There was no room for self-promotion. That goes on today. I, I've actually looked up websites of, of certain churches and you know, it doesn't tell me, it's, you know, the, uh, it's a pastor. They say apostle. Wow. They got apostles. Is it Paul? Is it Peter? Is it James? Not some other name. Oh, who made them an apostle? So the last time I checked, it was the Lord that named apostles. Hmm. Okay. To the church in Corinth, Paul brings them to remembrance of the very gospel that he had declared unto them, the gospel that he preached to them, the gospel they had received and upon which they stood and by which they were saved. That's the, the content of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, at least the first half of that, that, uh, that particular or first quarter of that particular chapter. Unless they believed in vain, which is what we find there at the end of verse Two, but in verse 3, notice what he goes on to say. In verses 3 and 4, he says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. You see, Paul delivered to them what can only be considered the chief things. That, that phrase, first of all, For I delivered unto you, first of all, 
He's not saying, I'm, I'm, he's not going, well, this is one, this is two, this is three. No, he said, first of all, literally what it means is that, that it is, he's giving them the chief things. He's giving them the matters of greatest importance, the most fundamental truths. They were the foremost points, and they were the revelations received from God himself and not from man. That is what he's delivering to them. Just as he said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, since we're coming to the table of communion, I thought I'd, I'd share a, a similar uh, passage where it says, Therefore I have received of the Lord, notice of the Lord, not of man, of the Lord, that which I also delivered unto you. And then he goes on to explain about the issue of the table of communion. <clears throat> but then he goes on and, 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 and gives the doctrine of the gospel in verses 3 and 4 because it's clearly stated by the apostle that which is the most significant message that the body of Christ could ever declare and proclaim. The most significant message is the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is not about us, it is about him. And he says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And certainly Isaiah 53 comes to mind. And I would give you a lot more quotes, but because of time, let me just give you one, verse 5, Isaiah 53. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. His chast the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Who is it speaking of? It is speaking of the suffering servant. Who is the suffering servant? When you compare this to all of the scriptures, which by the way, the scriptures at the time of Paul were the Hebrew scriptures. If you compare all of the scriptures, you realize it is speaking of the Messiah. And only the Messiah. It isn't about Israel. It isn't about anyone else. It is about Yeshua, Jesus. And then he confirms the events of the gospel through the testimony of eyewitnesses. That's verses 5 through 7. And then he was seen of Cephas, or Cephas, uh, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto the present, but some are fallen asleep. And after that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. But then you see that he adds in verse 8 this statement. And last of all, Last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. I'm going to give you a graphic description of the word born here that Paul uses in this statement. Because I want you to remember how he is seeing himself. Paul used the word born in the Greek, that word is considerably descriptive. It means a miscarriage or abortion. What he's saying is that he was a living miscarriage or abortion, born puny, not the proper size, not born at the right time, so, so to speak, scarcely worthy of the name of man. That's how Paul saw himself. Paul didn't wear a designer robe. Paul didn't ride an expensive stallion from place to place. For the most part in this Christian ministry on earth, 
He spent a lot of time shackled to Roman guards. He said, this is who I am. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's been said, understanding the deep truths of God's word does not give a man a big head. It gives him a broken and a contrite heart. This was Paul. This was the least of the apostles. This was Paul, less than the least of all saints. This was Paul, the chiefest of sinners. I cannot see myself even one centimeter higher than this apostle in anything. And yet, none of us can deny what Jesus Christ has done for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life.